Good afternoon and welcome to this week's Navara, broadcast live on London's most interesting radio station, Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm James Butler and I'm joined in the studio today by the eternally sharp, both in mind and in nails, Ash Sarkar, and the writer Juliet Jakes, whose superb new book, Trans, a Memoir, forms one of the bases for our discussions today. Before we jump into the show, I have a couple of Navara-related announcements to make. On Sunday the 20th of December, we will be holding a Navara Christmas get-together at a venue in South London, and it would be lovely to see all friends of the show and listeners there. Uh, For those who remember the last event, I am delighted to say, although perhaps some of you will be disappointed, there will be no hot tub this time. Uh, Please watch our social media and your inboxes for details on that, and you can find us on Twitter and Facebook under Navara Media. I'm also pleased to announce that our new regular video series, Terms of Engagement, is starting this week. And the series features me exploring one key political term per episode, terms like ideology, capital or culture. And look out for those on our YouTube channel. So, uh, Juliet, welcome back to the show. Uh, Trans really is a a superb book, uh, moving and sharp and funny. I find myself wanting to broach discussion of it from several angles, not least... Uh, you know, the difficulties that you have in the book with the expectations of what a trans woman's memoir writing should be like. Um, But perhaps we should start with the wider picture. And this book comes out at a time when we hear a lot about gains. And this moment has even been dubbed the tipping point for trans politics. And how true do you think that perspective is? Yeah, I mean, there's a tipping point, it feels, in terms of media representation although media representation in its broadest sense before you break it down into the sort of racial class or kind of diversity of gender identities that are represented within that. Uh, Although I think it's important to point out that 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 phrase, trans tipping point, comes from a Time magazine cover with Laverne Cox, who I do think is really great. Um, You know, she's incredibly smart uh, and, and does, I think, the same sort of thing that I try to do with the book, which is enter these mainstream spaces and actually question some of the positioning of prans people, the discussions around it, some of the prurience uh, around our kind of bodies, um, and, and tries to move the discourse onto somewhere more intelligent and interesting and complicated. In terms of how this trans tipping point feeds down to kind of people on the ground uh, in terms of improved access to medical services, improved security and employment or housing, better relationship with um, legal authorities, be that police or the courts or lawmaking. Uh, I think if this tipping point does help with those things, it's only going to do so in a quite slow and indirect way. Um, But I think culture has an important role in, in kind of changing people's minds about an issue, encouraging them to investigate an issue in more depth. So whether that is engaging with activism or a more directly political form of writing, that is one thing I think it can do. Uh, but, you know, just having an increased presence of kind of trans actors or journalists mm. or writers or whatever is not going to fix those problems in and of itself. Um, It's interesting that you bring up Laverne Cox because I love her. Um, And one of the things that was really striking about watching um, Orange is the New Black for the first time was that it was one of the first depictions of a trans woman that let her enjoy a fullness of friendships and relationships that wasn't just based around being trans. She was a fully rounded character. Um, And one of the things that comes up a lot in your book is the paucity in terms of pop cultural representation of trans experiences. Um, I was 
wondering if you think that um, the fact that there are some representations of fully rounded trans characters will make it easier for younger trans people to make sense of their own experiences or will there be a kind of double pressure to be as strong and as funny and as okay as the characters that they see and you know kind of internalized well um in the best tradition of like undergrad history essay writing i think it's both (laughs) (laughs) um i think yeah the increased presence of uh trans characters uh, and a diversity of trans characters in pop culture will absolutely as you say give people um a much more plausible, much more attractive and inviting picture of what trans living was was like, certainly much more attractive and inviting than the ones I saw as a teenager 20 years ago. Uh, But yeah, like you say, that cultural pressure to match up to people, um, I think it's something that's really important to think about. And I mean, one of the best things Laverne Cox has said, I think, is raising this idea of the possibility model rather than the role model. Uh, A trans person who appears in, in the kind of wider culture, who doesn't say you have to be like this but you can do this this trans identity doesn't have to stop you doing a certain thing uh i mean the sort of issue of trans characters i find most interesting uh, with regards to who plays them and i've written quite a lot about this discussion about whether cisgender or trans people play trans characters in films and television one of you know there's discussion about the validity of that but i think one of the most negative effects of it is that there's been very few openly trans people being allowed to play cis roles uh, so every time a cis person is tra- cast as a trans character it denies us a potential role model in the culture a possibility model in the culture i should say uh contradicting myself uh but it denies us a sort of potential person in the culture who you might be able to identify with um, and I think that's that's a real problem. I think also if you have cis actors playing trans roles, they tend to have to be very cliched because there's this, I mean, something like Trans America where there's a long series of kind of vignettes where Felicity Huffman has to kind of establish that the character is trans. Whereas if you watch something like Tangerine released recently or something as far back as Rosa von Praunheim's kind of queer and trans musical City of Lost Souls released in the early 80s, which was quite a lot of it was improvised by trans actors, uh, you do get a much more interesting, much more realistic uh, portrayal of trans living because you don't have to spend loads of time kind of establishing the relationship with the medical establishment or, you know, hormones and surgery or whatever. Uh, so you can move the discussion on to, like you say, more community-focused issues, and I think that's really important. Um, I mean, one thing I noticed growing up in the 90s was that there were an increasing number of visible gay men in the public discourse, in politics, in media, um in kind of art and literature. Uh, so if you didn't like Stephen Fry, you know, you had sort of Justin Fashionu. If you didn't like him, you had sort of Peter Tatchell. If you didn't like him, you had, you know, like Andy Bell or Julian Clary, even like them, Simon Fanshaw, whatever. Like, there were lots of different visible kind of gay men. Um, and I think a situation like that with trans people, you know, could be very useful to, to younger people in making them feel less isolated and alienated. Um, we should, I, I suppose, perhaps explain to our listeners the scope of the book, and that gives us a way into talking about memoir uh, more generally. Uh, and as a memoir, it takes in your whole life history, really, uh, thus far anyway. Um, 
from adolescence in suburban Surrey to a disappointingly Morrissey-less Manchester um, <laughs> to Brighton uh, and to London and it records the process of transitioning but also your deep engagement with art and with culture and especially film and novels and the texture of everyday life uh, and the, the experience of uh, starting to transition while working um, uh, and the memoir is by turns funny, extremely funny actually in places and deeply affecting and what struck me really is, is actually how, how very often people defy expectations of them and how deeply careless and adverse our culture can be, you know, how, how quotidian and insidious transphobia, particularly in media, can be. Uh, you, you mentioned a, a, what sounds like an appalling 2009 TV series, an episode from a 2009 TV series, um, with, with the sort of jokes that one would think would be confined to the dark ages, mm. and yet it is so recent. Uh, and so, so there, there's all of this stuff going on in, in the book, and it, one of the things that, that I really really liked about it was this attention to pop culture as the medium through which people relate and often in a, an extremely difficult way you mentioned a, a rather uh, distressing story about watching Ace Ventura mm. with, with, uh, with, with friends uh, and the sort of transphobic jokes in there um, but I wonder, I wonder you know, if you could say a little about how much uh, you've, you've, you've used pop culture um, uh, and how, how, how it's had an influence on... Yeah, I mean, the relationship with pop culture throughout the book is kind of extremely ambiguous for, for two reasons. Like One, like you say, you know, I can identify transphobic strains running through different aspects of it. And the other is that I'm a snob, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a very awkward relationship with it. Um, but what I talk about in the book is it's partly the chilling effect of section 28 uh it was passed in 1988 and obviously banned public bodies from kind of promoting homosexuality which meant that in practice you know schools and libraries wouldn't have any material on sexuality or gender variance beyond like the utterly normative and very little even of that um so i had to look to pop culture at that point, this is sort of 1992, I realised that I have some issue with my gender identity. Uh, and so all I really have is my parents' newspaper, which is the Daily Mail. So that's more or less a write-off, right? Um, so really, I'm turning to sort of film and television. and I'm kind of scouring through the Radio Times to find anything with mm. any sort of um, dealing with gender variants just to see if there are any people who feel the same way as me. So I talk about the crying game in the book, Ace Ventura, um, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Uh, and there's this real range of um, more positive and more negative representation. There's a real explosion of like trans-related film in the 90s, actually. Mm. Yeah, it runs from, from the crying game through to Boys Don't Cry at the end of the decade. Uh, so, so a lot of my time was spent just like watching these things on my own. But one of the effects of this was that, you know, they were buried quite late at night on BBC Two or Channel Four. I didn't really feel I could talk to any of my peers about them. Uh, and then in my sort of last month at secondary school, Dana International wins the Eurovision Song Contest. And I write about that in the book as well, um, because obviously this was a, a very visible platform that, you know, just in my class at school brought up a lot of discussions about whether or not... Um, being transsexual was okay uh, and the consensus in the class by and large seemed to be that it was but mm. with the fairly heavy caveat that you know as the guys in my class put it she had to be fit um, so so that gave me you know some idea of the sort of terms on which it worked but it did make me feel that maybe you know gender variant living wasn't 
quite the impossibility I'd been sort of led to feel it was from a lot of these, you know, sort of more sympathetic portrayals of trans people that I found in print and broadcast media, uh, you know, gave you a sort of impression that uh, a trans life wasn't really livable. Um, and, you know, for lots of people, mm. it still isn't or it's incredibly difficult. But, um, you know, lots of people can do it and are doing it. I mean, one of the things that, I mean, not to sound um, all Paul Masony, but the pop cultural possibilities unlocked by the internet has yeah. meant that um, people can go back and rediscover a kind of like buried history of gender variance and like queer subculture. One of the things, um, so I'm a big hip hop fan. Um, one of those really cringy people who will slut drop to anything. Um, and one of the things I've been really excited to see is the way that um, the language of Paris is burning, which you talk about in the book, has um, kind of returned through the music of Angel Hayes, Zebra Cats, to a lesser extent, Mickey Blanco, and, is, you know, Azealia Banks, even though she uh, occasionally loses her entire mind on Twitter and says things like she agrees with Trump. Don't understand that. Um, and it seems to me that... Um, I mean, I think we'll talk about the way in which especially print media has changed in the way that, um, as you put it, the bottom has fallen out of journalism. Mm. That's also meant that there's been an explosion of counter-hegemonic voices who are able to express themselves online, whether it's through like print, um, written media or music or art or design or fashion. Um, and I think it's really exciting to see that uh, there's such a celebration of gender variance in especially hip-hop it's not something that you would have necessarily expected to see back in the 90s or mm. like the early 2000s i would say it's always been there to an extent there's always been experimentation with gender roles in hip-hop perhaps more so than other genres of music but um it's something which definitely runs counter to the uh mainstream engagement with it as a form well yeah i mean this is this is something i've really been trying to do with the book and with one or two bits of my more long-form journalism about trans issues over the last couple of years is to say i mean people are really about the internet in particular they're really ahistorical about it uh, you know, a lot of the time with this kind of, you know, long-running tension between trans people and a certain brand of feminism, I would see people on Twitter saying, this is just a stupid conflict that started because of the internet. And I was like, no, no, it isn't. <laughs> um, and, I mean, yeah, you talk about, uh, like, hip-hop and, you know, a certain line of American culture that suddenly now seems to be having this kind of queer moment. And like you say, if you kind of actually know the history of it, you know there's this really long history of kind of, like, you know, queer men trans people, queer women of colour being involved in disco and, and hip-hop and and elsewhere. Um, I mean, somebody like Juliana Huxtable, who's becoming more prominent at the moment as an artist and DJ, uh, you know, came up through a background that wasn't through fine art, but was a sort of club culture that draws on exactly the kind of things that you've just been talking about. And also Tupac and Versace. That was a big moment. <laughs> that was a big moment, right? <laughs> Sure. Uh, <laughs> I feel you're more qualified to talk about that than me. But um. perhaps I, I could. I, there's a there's a certain there's there's a certain uh, strength that comes out of these these uh, these images or the, this this play with culture. And one of the people you you mention in, in the book and who who I think is an extraordinary and complex and sometimes difficult figure is Calpurnia Adams. Mm. Um, whom, whom I like. I only mentioned her briefly. Yeah. But, you know. um, but it, it struck me that one of the things you're saying about sort of possibility, uh, possibility models, 
and things like that. Um, uh, um, uh, it is the difficulty that historically, of course, people have had to uh, funnel themselves into this sort of narrative of being brave mm. um, and and sort of uh, uh, almost unassailably brave. And it's something that you refuse, I think, in in the book, uh, which uh, which which is one of the things that makes it uh, as moving as it is, in fact. Um, so, I, I, what sort of expectations are set for writing about trans experiences? Uh, well. I think until quite recently, it was only allowed to be framed in this very individualistic manner. Uh, and obviously, that was a fairly hefty compromise I made both with the Guardian series and the book. And um, one of the, the nice things I was able to do in the book is is the last third of the book gets increasingly metatextual. Um, because I can reflect on writing the Guardian series and the, the fairly big compromise I had of wanting to write more about a wider trans politics and sort of issues that collectively affected people, but finding that editors only really wanted me to frame it in this sort of first-person memoirish kind of way. And actually, I'd never really written like that. I'd also never written for the internet. Um, so it sort of involved writing in a fairly new way and having having come at things more from a kind of art and literature perspective than an activist one like, rather than think why should I accept those terms I kind of thought well, what can I do within them that's sort of interesting to me or, or different uh, but also has some sort of political relevance um, so you, you're being asked to accept these very very individualistic terms but I mean what I found was that once I'd secured that space um, the editors didn't know an awful lot about trans stuff and they kind of seemed to think that I knew what I was doing so they just left me to it so I used to play this game with my editors didn't tell them I was playing it which made it easier to win uh, but I called it theoretical buckaroo like buckaroo for anyone who doesn't know it is like this game where you have like a donkey in the middle of a board and you put stuff on it and when the donkey kicks its legs up in the air you lose uh, so basically I would like fill my articles with as much like history and theory and politics and links to activist texts or organisations as I could before the editors wrote back and said, look, can you do this again? <laughs> uh, I only lost twice in like 30 <laughs> columns. So, yeah, I think I did all right. But um, uh, there was that sort of expectation. And then, I mean, trans, uh, there's a certain type of like trans and particularly transsexual uh, being that is just very, very narrativized by the gender identity clinics, the way they, they want mm. a certain narrative of you know, realising you were different as a child and not fitting in and, you know, to some extent or other kind of traditional gender roles, have a very awkward relationship with that, been critiqued a lot by feminists and by, like, trans people. Um, and then the hoops you have to jump through to get through kind of transition and, you know, sort of engagement with psychiatric services, hormone treatment, possibly surgery if you want it, possibly hormones if you want them. Uh, but the sort of, you know, classic transsexual experience is really narrativized. Uh, so it's quite hard to sort of escape those conventions. And the book doesn't, really. I mean, the one thing it does do is put the surgery first with the Guardian mm. kind of headline and date and URL to establish that it's as much as anything a book about trans in the media and kind of becoming a part of that uh, and my you know huge ambivalence about it <laughs> um, and about all things. But... Um, it moves the surgery first and then where the surgery sort of should be in the book between the penultimate and the final chapter, uh, there's a kind of abridged article that I wrote about before and after presentation of 
well, particularly trans people. I mean, you see it in various other fields, but these before and after photos that serve to kind of mask and obscure processes of change, they're actually much more gradual and often uh, much less kind of spectacular than they're made out to be. Um, so it wasn't so much rejecting those conventions entirely because it just wasn't, you know, possible, uh, but at least kind of criticising them and pointing to other people's critiques of them, yeah. Um, one of the... I, I've really enjoyed the book. Um, I learned a lot from it and I really recommend that people read it just for the potted history of trans discourses. Um, so it was my first time reading Sandy Stone's uh, essay the Empire Strikes Back. And one of the questions that keeps appearing throughout it is who is telling the story for whom, mm. uh, for what purpose, and is the story that's being told the same one that's being heard? Um, how did that inform your writing and how you put the memoir together? Yeah, I mean, there was this big issue of who is it for. I mean, the book took an awful long time to to gestate and to get commissioned. I mean, I started doing the Guardian series in... I got commissioned in 2009 and ran nearly a year later. Um, and really that was written in such a way... It was partly for The Guardian itself because their trans coverage had been, you know, really mm. minimal and quite hostile. And where they did use trans writers, they were responding to very antagonistic terms that were set. So it's trying to sort of reset that discussion. So it's largely for the paper itself, but it was also for... Partly for, yeah, younger trans people, I kind of thought, you know, when I was younger... In the early 90s, there was nothing visible at all. And by the late noughties, there was so much on the internet, but you might not know where to start. Um, so maybe looking at trying to create some sort of starting point for people um, and something with open comments so that other perspectives could come into it. So that was where trans readers who sort of gone through the process of establishing their identity could come into that work was through the comments. But it was also just for people, I, you know, I'd spent years by that point working in really boring office jobs and just noticed that like, everyone read The Guardian, including lots of people who, you know, don't fit the certain stereotype of a Guardian reader. And I thought, well, actually, you know, if this is on, like, the front page of The Guardian, anyone could click through to it. Um, and that felt really interesting and worthwhile as well. And, you know, I could well imagine the kind of people at work who who might just stumble across it and maybe have their preconceptions challenged by it. So The Guardian series felt, on sort of existential level, that was why I was doing it. And... You know, within sort of doing six or seven of the episodes, people were saying to me, look, are you going to turn this into a book? And for a long time, I didn't really see an existential need for it. I thought there's loads of trans memoirs out there. Um, I've already done this material, but um, so so why why turn it into a book? And gradually I found that the firstly, that kind of anti-trans feminist perspective started kicking back into mainstream media in a slightly different way. Um, and it felt like the need to create a weightier counter to that. And that actually happened while I was writing the book, really. Um, and, you know, just wider transphobia in mainstream media definitely hadn't gone away. Uh, and, you know, a book, I felt, could be a record of that. And, you know, maybe there were certain people much more likely to read a book than to read a rolling newspaper series. The other thing that I thought could be interesting, because the series covered... It had two articles on before transition, so nearly all of the series was just covering the transition from sort of beginning to something that felt, you know, at least a sort of official end to the uh, medical process. Um, and actually I had an appointment 
with a gender clinic, like a follow-up appointment after I finished the series, which is forms the end of the narrative of the memoir. So I thought it might be interesting, actually, to cover in far more depth, like the managing of the assigned gender, because I hadn't really seen that so much. Um, so that kind of happens from university in Manchester through to 2009, where the Guardian series starts. Um, and I thought that process might be interesting for people to read about and reflect on. Uh, I mean, in terms of, I mean, an interesting discussion that's happening in North America at the moment, like largely through Topside Press, kind of queer publisher, uh, is this issue of like whether you write towards cis or trans people. Um, and I definitely see the worth in that. And there, is, there are some things that I have written more consciously towards trans people or more for a trans audience. And I think that's happened more in the short fiction I've written. Um, but I think what that dichotomy potentially neglects are the people that this book is written for above everybody else. It's written for, I think, younger trans people who haven't been through that process of establishing their identity yet um, or are just starting it uh, and maybe give some kind of reference points, things to look out for, things that maybe they feel are different now. Um, and those are the people that I think potentially slip through the net. There, I mean, really, the book is is written like just for my eighteen year old self. Uh, like, this is the book I'd want, um, and my eighteen year old self no longer exists. So, you know, that's a publisher's nightmare if you tell them that, right? They're like, "Who's the audience for this book?" It's like it was one person who's changed. I mean, there's <laughs> that bit uh, where you talk. Uh, sorry, I'm quoting from your book. You definitely already know this because it happened to you, and you said it. Um, but there's the bit where you talk about uh, I am. Uh, working towards having a platform so that I can make peace with my own youth. Yeah. And I thought, like, isn't that all memoir? You've kind of summed it up um, in a really beautiful way. And it, what, what I loved about this book is that it opened up questions, not just in terms of thinking about uh, gender expression and gender variance, but what's the purpose of memoir? Um, why, why does anyone write anything? What are they trying to grapple with? Um, how... How are they uh, expressing something of themselves through the form that they choose, and what's the um, what's the central drama that's being expressed throughout it? And one of the things that I loved about this form, where you're kind of inserting like readings of films and engagements with theory, is that it speaks to the way in which all identity is constructed, which is through pop culture, through things that you read, and it. I mean. Even as a cis woman, it really spoke to my experience of being an adolescent and mm. learning how to be a woman. And these moments of disconnect where I didn't quite get it right and the mechanisms of social control that stepped in. Um, so it was something which um, certainly is of immense value to trans audiences. But I felt um, incredibly moved by and engaged with as well. Um, yeah, like for me, this is up there with like, Edmund White and Marquez in terms of best life writing I've read and can't recommend it highly enough. Wow, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, the book does talk an awful lot about the constitution of identity through pop culture. I think even more than that, just like social interaction in its broadest sense and the way like pop culture permeates into social interaction and social interaction feeds back into pop culture um, and not even really wanting to separate the two things. Um You know, there are a few moments where you can trace that line very directly, like, you know, sort of Brighton 2005, where I'm like walking around as Juliet and someone screams, I'm a lady at me, which is, you know, catchphrase mm. from Little Britain, um, which, you know, probably wasn't an intended effect of, of 
David Williams, but, you know, that's what happened. Um, I mean, memoir I find really interesting from a trans perspective because, as I've said, it's the way we've always been expected to write. And I think there's been a certain amount of antagonism in the last kind of 25 years. I mean, you mentioned the Sandy Stone text, The Empire Strikes Back. It's been a really foundational piece of writing for me where Stone talks about kind of... criticises some of the older trans memoirs like Jan Morris's Conundrum, Man Into Woman, uh, which is a strange text, ostensibly by Lily Elba, but written under a pseudonym and then edited by someone else who was also using a pseudonym. There's weird layers of refraction uh, around this, this piece of writing. Um, but Sandy Stone sort of criticises the way those old memoirs sort of actually serve to erase a lot of the space between the established categories of male and female and encourages writers to kind of work within that space. Um, and so Stone sort of, you know, I think provides an inspiration to a number of uh, 1990s writers in North America like Kate Bornstein, Leslie Feinberg, mm. Pat Califia and then through to like Vivian Namast who criticises a lot of those writers for actually neglecting a lot of the practical challenges of gender variant living and then on to like Julia Serrano um, Paul Preciado a number of others um, and there's certain names I've left out there but the reason I've sort of chosen those ones is because actually those works of theory are full of memoir basically mm. like really full of memoir they're not structured like a memoir but they're absolutely full of autobiographical detail and you know they're often incredibly candid like Kate Bornstein's Gender Outlaw in particular um, is incredibly open um, and I was really interested in finding that sort of middle ground between those two genres and also with fiction I mean um, like I said, I'd never written any sort of first-person writing before I did the Guardian series. Uh, and my interest had always been in sort of lines of philosophy and critical theory and in fiction. Um, and some of the the stuff I was reading in my mid-20s when I was sort of forming my own relationship with writing were people like B.S. Johnson, Rainer Heppenstall, Anne Quinn in the UK, and uh, Jean-Philippe Toussaint, uh, Natalie Sarraut, Marguerite Durat in France. And pretty much all of those writers, um, even if it wasn't kind of explicitly autofiction, were very upfront about how much their fiction drew from their own lives. Uh, and obviously that's come down into a really interesting line of writing with people like uh, Lars Eyer, Sheila Hetty, Chris Krauss, who, you know, quite explicitly uh, use their own lives as direct material for their novels. And, you know, all three of them have written books where the central character shares the name with the author and a lot of autobiographical details. Uh, and that's the kind of writing I find the most interesting at the moment. I mean, this book couldn't do that. Uh, and the reason it couldn't do it is because to have a sort of central character called Juliet Jakes, who shares a lot of my kind of experiences, but say, you know, invents a number of episodes where I struggle with sort of institutional prejudice or social violence or whatever would have just been, you know, appropriatory and just obscene. Like it just wasn't wasn't appropriate at all. Um, so it's ended up being being a much more kind of direct memoir. But I've tried to incorporate just something of that kind of spirit in terms of a sort of creative attitude to one's own life as, as material. I mean, the, the way the book does make a nod to that is in the epilogue, which mm. is a Q&A with Sheila Hetty. I wanted to get... Initially, I wanted to interview myself about what happens in the book, the tropes it uses, my relationship with the media and with media representation. 
and I decided not to interview myself and bring in another voice, but I struggled to find the right person to do it. And in the end, I hit on Sheila because we'd uh, done an interview together for the Women in Clothes volume that she co-edited. Um, and, you know, she had a sort of interesting and interested kind of outsider perspective on Britain, on trans issues, uh, on me and, and my writing. Um, and the book like had to do that. There had to be some critique of its own form, which I originally wanted to run throughout the text, but like they wouldn't let me. <laughs> um, so that was that was the way of doing it. And of course, the way the book ends is is with me going to my last appointment at the clinic. Spoiler warning, by the way. Uh, so I go to my last appointment at the clinic, leave, and you know that's the end of this like four year process of engaging with a medical establishment, uh, and like a twenty year process of actually working all this stuff out. Um, and I get outside and the clinic's in Hammersmith and I'm on my own. It's like a Tuesday afternoon at midday. Um, and I'm actually working at Charing Cross Hospital where I had the surgery by that point uh, as a temporary NHS administrator. And um, so I get outside and think, well, I should celebrate because that's done. Brilliant. But of course, what can you do in Hammersmith at <laughs> midday on the Tuesday afternoon leave uh, well <laughs> but I can't leave so I've got to go back to work so uh, I go for like lunch at a pub and it's really disappointing I don't really eat any of it and then just go back to work and log onto my computer there's no new emails and nothing on the Guardian site that I want to read but I couldn't leave the readers there you know so there's this this Q&A but, um, I mean but there, there is this sense I think throughout throughout the book of, of this kind of doubleness there's an, there's an awareness of, of the book that uh, it could be and, and a sort of critical awareness of its form uh, a doubleness between you and the whole inherited history of, of trans memoir writing um, you know from Jan Morris onwards uh, there's also this doubleness between you know the way in which you, you're aware that you're constructing your identity a bit for the gender identity cl- clinic mm. um, there's you know so there's kind of acute sense of, of that sort of the way in which these doublenesses work sort of throughout and continually. Um, and, uh, you know, no more is that, that more obvious, I think, when you, you sort of quote in full from sort of uh, various medical leaflets and you, you suddenly have this sense of these, 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 these two, you know, this way of conceiving things and then the way of living it is so different and so, so, so much more complex and so much more interesting, frankly. Um, but what struck me about a doubleness is, of course, also the way that... that, that, uh, that that you talk about uh, using the media and mm. you talk about sort of uh, being part of the media. And, and perhaps that's one thing that we can move, move on to. I mean, you, you, you quote your father at one point in the book saying, it's amazing how much work goes into being an overnight success. It's the best thing my dad's ever said. <laughs> it's, yeah. a, it's a fantastic line. Um, and yes, this is. This, so uh, how, how do you feel that the, the media has changed like that? Oh, God, yeah. Um, I mean, it feels like it's changed so much, like these discourses are moving mm. so rapidly. Um I mean, yeah, in 2009, when I got the column commission, like I said, I did it because just, I was seeing so few trans voices in mainstream media. And this struck me as a way that was realisable for me. Uh, I tried to write... First, I tried to write a sort of underground, you know, sort of experimental volume of short stories about, like, trans people and lives. And it didn't really feel that the mid-noughties was the right time for that. It was actually mainstream media is doing a lot of harm. We should try and counter that. Then I tried to go the other way and I wanted to write a sort of trans equivalent of queer as folk. Um, and just, I couldn't do it. You know, I wasn't 
of kind of pop culture enough to be able to make something like that work in terms of who my connections were but just stylistically I mm. couldn't write like that and you know, I'd watch too many Alan Rob Grier novels and just couldn't <laughs> write a plot and, I think um, all of us have been ruined by literature degrees I think yeah um, they have, Alan Rob Grier I think has ruined a lot of people um, but um yeah, so I couldn't really work that either. So the Guardian column felt like the right balance. I felt I could write in the sort of style and tone that would work in the Guardian, uh, but it was sort of had enough reach to to feel that it was sort of working within the mainstream to a point where it felt like it would achieve the sort of visibility that I felt was necessary at that point. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of doubleness about that. There was doubleness because I felt awkward about working with the Guardian, precisely because they're trans record was so poor and that was a reason both to do it and not to do it at the same time um obviously i felt very conflicted about kind of using my transition in this way i mean um you know in some ways it felt quite vulgar it did feel like kind of selling out um but on the other hand i thought well i've been either excluded or marginalized from so many spaces including a lot of radical queer ones for being a trans woman um or, you know, had had so many opportunities lost to me just with the mental health problems that had come with living in a transphobic society. So I kind of thought, again, well, you know, a part of it felt, well, no, this is this is the power that I have. Uh, but I felt very awkward about that. Um, and just, I mean, I was using, it wasn't opinion journalism, it wasn't commentary, but it was kind of using that form mm. um, or something that looked like it. And I felt very conflicted about that because... You know, obviously in the mid-noughties, The Guardian in particular used commentary as a way of dealing with the coming of the internet. Um, and I didn't like most of this commentary. I mean, you know, I sort of... I. I followed it quite closely. I knew who most of the writers were and sort of attached a sort of personality or a persona to them. Uh, and, you know, a couple of things happened you know that i picked up on that that i found problematic one was yeah the very establishment of a sort of persona in that form because i think you know if you have to write that regularly you end up repeating yourself quite a lot and it becomes quite predictable uh and the other problem i had with it was like i would read these these columnists and they're very polemical and i would just think you've got like 700 words how can you be so sure that like say bombing iraq is going to turn out fine um because it might not um spoiler alert yeah absolutely um and so i wanted to kind of write something really that um you know, was much more kind of ambivalent and, um, you know, securing a longer, more open-ended platform was a way of doing that. But a lot of my kind of comment articles would just, like, end with a question. Um, and in the end, actually, that felt to me really predictable. And uh, one of the most revealing moments in interaction with a, a reader was a few years ago, I wrote something for The New Statesman, and it was about like my favourite footballer, Grant Holt, leaving Norwich City. Uh, and one of the comments just like, oh, this is really boring. We've heard it all before. And someone said, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> you know, who who else is writing about like, you know, journeyman footballers in this sort of way? And the, the commenter said, look, it's not the, the subject matter that's predictable. It's just the approach. Like next week, it will be exactly the same approach as something else. I don't know, theatre or something. And I kind of read it and I was really annoyed at this comment because like, I knew they were right. <laughs> so there are, t- I mean, two threads that I want to pick up on. Uh, one, so two F words, one being feminism, the mm. other one being football. Uh, to talk about uh, feminism for a little bit. Um because we've been talking about the 
uh, trans exclusionary radical mm. feminist, or like dancing around that a bit. And I don't want to spend too much time. No, talking you did a show about on it, it quite recently. Um, so. But I think it's worth talking about uh, marginality within feminism mm. and how how you cope with that. And obviously, it's very different. But I've experienced like uh, you know the kind of racial analog and struggling with the. Um, whether or not I would identify as a feminist when uh, I feel the primary antagonism in my life is based on race rather than gender. Mm. Not you can not that you can separate those things neatly. Um, and the way in which I've tried to make myself feel understood by white women is by recommending reading. Um, and that's also how I came to understand my own experience in the first place. When I was 13, my mum gave me a copy of Black Skins, White Masks. And I was like, you don't know anything, mum. Things have changed so much. And then got to 18 and I was like, you know everything, mum. I'm sorry I ever doubted you. Um, but a way of making myself feel understood was by recommending Toni Morrison, Masat Wadevi, uh, Zora Neale Hurston, uh, Nella Larson. And I think that... Um, where you feel despair at being excluded from what should be a, um, spaces, networks where you feel supported and you, you feel um, a sense of solidarity, uh, the way in which you feel cultural artefacts can contain something of yourself and you can kind of hand them over um, as, a, as a way of um, providing a kind of buffer, number one, so you're not just um, opening yourself up to mm. nonsense um, but yeah uh, you have a very strong emotional connection to it and I think it's I, I feel like the act of writing and also the act of reading is inherently optimistic um, and it's a way of negotiating the kind of despair optimism binary that I find myself flip-flopping around all the time yeah I mean what I love what really I sort of love and find really interesting about writing is it always feels like failure, right? I mean, like, all writing ultimately fails. Like, you're not... Uh, you know, even the writers whose texts sort of directly manage to inspire kind of revolutionary action, that revolutionary action generally didn't turn out that well. So you know, <laughs> even things that achieve remarkable things, you know, there's always some element of, of failure in it. But once you sort of accept that, um, there are really interesting things that that writing can achieve. Like what I really love about uh, writing and culture around texts is kind of exactly what you say. You kind of, you publish something, you put it out into the world and you just, you don't know who it's going to reach or when. And, you know, there's potentially infinite amount of time that literary or philosophical or theoretical works can have an effect uh, in all sorts of really interesting and unpredictable ways. Um, which is, you know, why I kind of felt with the uh, Guardian series and this book, it was better to act than to to not act. Um, and maybe I lost something of my own integrity by interacting with certain um, outlets, networks. Uh, but but you know, I I hope this will have some positive effect, even if it doesn't achieve everything I wanted it to achieve. I mean, the the books, the book and the Guardian series's aim of um, kind of uh, attacking that trans-exclusionary 
radical feminist perspective on trans issues, uh, the whole point was to take up a different line rather than accepting the terms of that argument and taking them on face on, trying to find a way to write around it and maybe reset the terms of the discussion. And I think one thing it's helped to do is help editors understand that readers can actually take on trans perspectives by trans people and understand them um, in a way that they didn't think it could but that trans exclusionary perspective hasn't really gone away i mean it's still it's still very visible uh, and very vocal um and so i would you know i'd say it's quite limited success in in that respect but i mean the one time i did tackle that head-on was an article for the new statesman last summer which ended up being eight and a half thousand words um, and I managed to get that sort of space. I built up sort of relationship of trust with the people there um, and just did it kind of incrementally, just sort of initially said, yeah, I'll do 850 words, standard length, comment piece, fine. Uh, and then just kept writing back every day saying, this has got a bit longer, is that all right? And then like submitted this thing that was 10 <laughs> times longer than it was meant to be. And it's the only time I've ever gone viral. Like it trended on Twitter. It was the most read thing on the Statesman site for like two days. And having been, excellent. Having been told for years by like, other writers who tried to get things commissioned editors would just say oh readers don't want trans politics and theory they're not interested in that um you know i think you always have to be very suspicious of that because usually if an editor tells you that readers don't want something it's exactly what they want um you know cf kind of members of the labor right saying no people don't want a left-wing candidate (laughs) (laughs) but we won't go into that now (laughs) One of the things, I suppose you, you mentioned going viral, I mean, one of the things we can talk about, one of the things you're, you're obviously very ambivalent about in, in the book is the internet. Yeah. Uh, is exactly how destructive the internet can be for anyone who's trying to do anything that isn't sort of immediately sort of adrenal and reactive or, or is perhaps a bit more considered. Um, is there anything good about the internet? There's loads of good stuff. I mean, like, I'm not Jonathan Franzen, right? Like, I'm not severe. Like, I've never Thank used God the internet, but it's rubbish. I hate it. Um, buy my book. Um, I, mean, there's lo- I mean, one of the things the book does is tries to offer a sort of positive history of the internet. And one of my favourite passages in the book is talking about, in the 90s, breaking out of that deadlock of only having print and broadcast media Mm. through the early internet and like what i did from the age of about 14 onwards was like look up the only words available to me like transvestite transsexual crossdresser and find all these websites by people like usually like geocities yes where people just sort of laid out like a handful of photos some texts about their lives um and it really cut through a lot of the stereotypes and made me think oh there's like real trans people like near me who I can actually contact and meet and be in the same spaces as and start a dialogue either through email or physically or both so that was really great I mean I was never very interactive with it and I was quite happy with that Um, you know every now and again I'd go on the guest book and say hey nice site and that was enough for Mm. me Um, obviously social media operates at a kind of a pitch of intensity both in terms of like speed and sort of emotional character uh, that isn't for everyone Um, and it's not really for me uh, but I mean, nonetheless, I mean, you know, Twitter, I really enjoyed early on. It did some incredible things for me. It made me aware of a community that was having all sorts of incredibly interesting discussions, a kind of blogging kind of culture or subculture, um, places to go, things to do, people to meet. I used to meet people from Twitter all the time. Mm. Um, it's often is and continues to be staggeringly funny. Um, and you know, there's numerous examples you can pick out of that. Um, and those are the positives of it. Um, 
I mean, I found that, you know, my, my big problem with Twitter was actually kind of over-relating to it. And I found that I sort of, I broadcast so much of my own life um, through the series and through Twitter that in the end I just burnt myself out. And, you know, the last couple of years I've really withdrawn both from journalism and Twitter because I don't have that much left to give in those forms. Uh, I mean, in the book I talked near the end of, like, borrowing a, a DVD from the close-up library in Shoreditch, which was near where I was living at the time. And every time I borrowed some, like, really kind of weird, pretentious, like, film from close up i tweet about it like hey just watch this documentary about the dutch conceptual artist bastianada and like would look back at it like who is this for <laughs> um and with, with both kind of journalism and uh twitter i think i just reached a level of self-consciousness that would often be sort of quite quickly reinforced um you know if i said something i wasn't sure about uh that it just became i just found it impossible to speak in those um those contexts i mean i haven't like gone straight to the guardian and written a piece about how i've been silenced because like <laughs> it just doesn't look great does mm. it if you're on the front page of the guardian saying no one will let me speak <laughs> um, but but yeah none that you know I, I found it impossible to use those platforms but what i kind of it led to a sort of change in my writing practice and it actually led me back to where I wanted to be in the first place. Journalism was only ever plan B for me. In sort of 2002 or so, I was 20 in undergrad, and I thought, well, I want to be a writer. And my plan was to do journalism, you know, to try and make sort of a thousand, twelve hundred pounds a month or so, to give me enough to write fiction and plays and and that kind of writing. And back then I focused very much on criticism and most of my 20s I actually wrote for a, a film magazine called Film Waves, which is gone now. Um, it was an Arts Council-funded avant-garde film magazine, so like that's over. Um, but it just became impossible, actually, to make a living mm. out of journalism in a way that would subsidise more creative writing. So I've actually just gone back to that. And one thing I noticed about Twitter was that if you're not writing in, you know, the sort of the kind of writing that gets commented upon the most is sort of directly political commentary published in. The meaning of the space is very important. I mean, you know, I targeted The Guardian, the New States and places like that because I knew those spaces had a certain kind of resonance and would reach a lot of people and that people took them seriously and what was published in them mattered. So... You know, it's directly political commentary in sort of traditionally mainstream media spaces uh, that's relatively short form. And I kind of just came to feel that if I just wrote longer form pieces, especially outside of those spaces, then actually it was a lot more freeing. So to change the subject wildly um please do football I, yeah it is football it is football because <laughs> that was how i first came across your writing was the piece that you did on justin fashionu mm. for the new statesman and this is something which i uh, struggles the wrong word um toy with quite often it's like what in amongst all the like oil barons and absurdly expensive season tickets um, and quite nice looking men in shorts, what's the potential for football as a radical emancipatory project, especially in relation to the policing of gender and the often extreme homophobia and racism mm. uh, that both fans and players are subjected to well a little bit like the trans stuff really you know i realized i loved football around about the same time and then sort of found that like mainstream football cultures didn't really feel like it was for me even though i supported a sort of top division team um not so much anymore uh, in and out <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah um that's norwich city by the way if anyone's not sure um it's in the book but um 
you know, I found myself looking for like alternative football cultures. Um, there's a lot of stuff in the memoir about playing for like um, a gay football team in Brighton, which became sort of rebranded as an LGBT football team not that long after I joined. Um, because I had this sort of trans identity. And what grew out of that was the Justin campaign that I set up with a couple of teammates to challenge that homophobia in football. And there were these really long and intense discussions about, you know, whether it was right to use fashion as an avatar for that, given that he wasn't an activist, didn't really like activism that much, had lots of other issues with his mental health and particularly race. Um... And also just bad luck with injury and things like that and, you know, reducing his life to an avatar for a campaign. Uh, and the, so the campaign ended up kind of growing into football v homophobia and football v transphobia and biphobia that, you know, does an awful lot of very big work now. And that just grew out of the three of us in, like, my friend Jason's, like, living room. Um, so there's a lot of that kind of work. Uh, and also kind of kept finding like, artistic and creative approaches to football that interested me, like the three-sided football movement, um, by Asker Yorn, the proto-situationist artist that's picked up by the Luther Blissett group in the 90s, and their manifestos about three-sided football explicitly talked about kind of exploding the sort of homoerotic, homophobic discourse that really is, you know, very inherent in football culture, I think. Um, and, you know, obviously anti-racism movements in football, kind of anarchist football clubs like the Eastern Cowboys and people like that who I found through the sort of noughties. So again, there is this sort of culture of just like, and, you know, just fan-owned clubs and clubs that are formed to counter the sort of takeover of um of teams by just like plutocrats uh you know again i mean football culture i get very frustrated uh with certain responses to it because football culture can look incredibly monolithic and if you only see the sort of headlines about you know some england international footballer who's just some done something objectionable uh, then you can get a certain picture of it. But if you're immersed in it, actually, you can find your way to all sorts of interesting people, histories. Uh, at this point, I would recommend David Goldblatt's book, The Ball is Round, which is kind of a Marxist history of, of football, really, that jumps from sort of English public schools in the 1850s through to, you know, Brazil and Argentina and Chile and the USSR and... There's All also the, the Al Jazeera series, which was fronted by Eric Cantona with his like beetle black eyes, like <laughs> just boring into the camera as he talks about like um, mostly he talks about Socrates. He talks about uh, Didier Drogba as well. And I think he also t- does a bit of talking about um, Algeria. Right. So really interesting. I like, didn't know about that. It's excellent. That. Like, he came and sat next to me at a Marcel Duchamp exhibition <gasps> a couple of years ago. It was just just sat there wordlessly and... Uh, <laughs> My friend Zakir just said, you're desperate to talk to him, aren't you? And he sat next to me for 20 minutes and I concluded that the thing I most wanted to talk to him about wasn't the Al Jazeera series I didn't know about. It wasn't the fact that he played uh, Per Ubu in the Alfred Jarry play. It wasn't the fact he called for a run on the banks or being in the Ken Loach film. I was still angry about the time he kicked Norwich's John Paulson in the head during a cup game and didn't get sent <laughs> off and then scored. Um, which... At the end of the day, I'm just as pathetic as anybody else about these things. I think that's the conclusion I come to. But, um, yeah. Um. Uh, yes, no, okay. Uh, <laughs> we've five minutes left. And I, I, I just wanted, to, I wanted to, to talk uh, just, just a little about exactly what the relationship is between, the, between sort of everyday life and politics. Mm. Because it, it's, you know, one of the things that has really struck me by following sort of these days sort of young queer and young, young trans activists sort of on the internet and on Twitter is that they, they're, they're sort of 
you know, I find myself having to update things that I used to to, to take as, as givens. Mm. Um, and I wonder about that process. And I wonder, you know, one of the things that, that really, you know, that, that the book is so good on is is insisting on seeing these political questions through the prism of everyday life. And and I, I wonder what way you see those those kind of politics going. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really difficult to say. I mean, you know, I've talked a lot about burnout already mm. and, um, you know, I have retreated from a lot of these discussions, at least as an active participant. Uh, so so I find it quite hard to, to predict that, really. Um, I mean, I do think that, you know, politics that ignores the reality of lived experience... Um, you know, is always going to have problems. Mm. Um, and, you know, real experience is complicated. And I think uh, something I've said somewhere, maybe not in the book, but, you know, people's kind of lived experiences pretty much always end up being more complicated and difficult than the, like, paradigms and frameworks we produce for them. Um, hence these things kind of constantly evolving. Um I don't really know, to be honest. So, I mean, I wish I had an easy answer <laughs> yes, to that. Yes, yes, like, yes. I'm sure we all do. Yeah, I mean, um, one of the things that, that has struck me recently is I, I you know, uh, the Marlon James, uh, Caribbean writer, mm. um, who, who sort of put online this this sort of long, you know, long update, saying, you know, talking exactly about this this kind of thing, saying, you know, look, as someone who has a progressive political identity, the point is to progress mm. and that it might be difficult and that, you know, sometimes you're going to have to learn new pronouns or new names for things or new frameworks and ways of understanding things. So, I mean, you know, I, I, I sometimes, I, I wonder if it's useful for us to sometimes step back from the vituperation and anger or sort of instant reaction of Twitter to go, yeah, actually, some of this stuff is, is really, really progressing. It's really, you know, actually quite, quite positive. Um, so, so yes. I mean, my, my, I, I basically, I, I, it's one of the things that that really struck me throughout the book is exactly that. You know, how, how much, you know, uh, how much life there is in it, actually. But that's also thinking about trans not just as an identity, but as a way of seeing the world. Things are mm. in flux; they're not fixed. Um, you're learning new words for things all the time, and language is always up for grabs. And I think of that as a tremendously. Uh, positive like encouraging and energizing thought um and one of the things that like i know we've only got a couple of minutes left i think like not just thinking about how does this book allow um cis people to understand a trans experience but how does this book allow you to think of a trans framework for understanding everything yeah i mean broadly it's trying to offer a trans perspective and Again, this is you know this is a big ambition, but to try and try and make that sort of somehow transformative for for readers whose you know kind of starting points in life have been very very different to mine, um, and to open up a kind of a dialogue from a starting point that felt more constructive. I mean, this book you know never attempts to be kind of definitive. It's not saying this is the trans experience. It's saying it's a trans experience, uh, but nonetheless, you know, here is a certain way of looking at the world that came from, you know, this sort of fundamental discord between body and mind that I had to resolve. I mean, I, I say in the epilogue of the book, you know, I live in the world, I live in a country, I live in a city, uh, I live in a house, but even before that, I live in my body. Um, so these different um, kind of spheres in which you move, but, I, you know, I think for most people, 
the body and your connection with the body is just a given um and something something as huge and jarring as like gender dysphoria i think is always going to have a huge effect on your perspective on just about everything right well that is all we have time for this week uh juliet jakes thank you very much for for joining us um Trans, a memoir is out now. I really recommend that our listeners pick it up and buy it. It really is an extraordinary uh, and very much worthwhile book. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, And you can join us same time, same place next week. Thanks. Bye.